Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Church Online. If you are new, welcome. If not, welcome back. Last week, we got to the part in the story after God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments, and they wandered in the desert for 40 years. And after that, they crossed the Jordan River, and they captured the city of Jericho. And we asked a particular question back then. What kind of person does God use to take ground, to advance his kingdom? And we asked why it was significant that God used Joshua. And we said it was because Joshua was scared to death. And that's why God had to continually say to him, be strong and courageous. And then we talked about Rahab. Why is it significant that God used Rahab? Well, because she didn't have it all together. We don't know her exact situation, uh, but we do know she didn't have it all morally figured out. And we also know that she didn't wait to get her life together before she started following God. She just started where she was at. Today we're in chapter 8 of the story and we're going to zero in on part of the section of the book of Judges, the next book in the Old Testament after the book of Joshua. And to set the stage, what you need to know is that when the Israelites moved into the promised land, each tribe was responsible for going and taking over a certain section of the land. And once they did that, that section was theirs. What we have to wrestle with today are a few issues. One is, how do we make sure that we transfer our love of God to our children? Another one is, do we believe that God is holding out on us? Or has God given us everything that we need? So if you read the chapter, you were introduced to some women and men who were used by God to do some great things and to keep Israel on track with the covenant they had made with God. So I want to pick it up in Judges chapter 2, verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. So here's the question that we should all have. How does that happen? How is it that one generation after they've been in the desert, that the children that they had, they were raised up, those children were raised up, and they didn't know anything about God? or what he'd done for Israel. So it raises this question for every adult, whether you're a parent or not, or whether you're a grandparent or aunt or uncle or not, every adult, how do I ensure that my children know who my God is and that he knows what he's done in my life? And how do I make, how do I make sure of that? Because I think what happens to us a lot of times is it's not so much that we want to withhold information. We just don't intentionally factor it in. And again, I'm not a professional, but I'll tell you here on this, on parenting, but here's what I can tell you. Whatever you choose to hold as trite, your children and the kids and families around you that are watching you, whatever you choose to hold as trite or you're ambivalent, your children aren't going to hold that as significant. They will hold it as insignificant. 
And trite means you act as if certain things are corny, not maybe not totally true, maybe dull or cliche. Basically, you don't act like it matters, or maybe it only matters sometimes to you, or maybe it only matters if there's not something more fun or interesting for you to be involved in. Does that make sense? Here, here's, here's what that means. If you hold your relationship with the Lord tritely, like it's, it's important this week because I know what the topic is at church and I like it, but it's not important next week because there's, there's a game on or I'm just too tired or whatever. So what is trite? If you hold it as trivial, if you hold it as insignificant or negligible, if you say it's important, but you don't act like it is, or if you say it's important, but you don't consistently act like it, then guess what message you are sending to your kids and the kids around you? If your relationship with the Lord and your obligation within your faith community, if you hold that as trite, yeah, it's important, but I got all these other things. Yeah, we're supposed to do it, but I don't have time. Your children will believe that that thing is insignificant. So if you want your children to know and love the Lord, if you want them to be involved in a faith community that will help them grow and mature to the potential they have in Christ, you need to hold that as precious and dear. And your children need to see you being purposeful and intentional with your faith and engaged and participating in the life of the church and serving and practicing spiritual disciplines and praying and reading the word of God and following through. They need to not just know that you think or do these things. They need to see these things happening in your life. And you need to show them how to do what you're doing. That's, that's the legacy piece. Like seriously, how is it possible that within one generation, they did not know anything that God had done? Now I understand they were busy. They were busy taking over their inheritance. And that's important, wouldn't you agree? But whatever you hold is trite. They will, they will view it as insignificant. But whatever you hold is precious, they're going to hold that as precious. But if you think and act like something is insignificant, then they're going to take it one step further and it will not matter to them at all. So how do I make sure that my children and my grandchildren, the children of my friends, children in my neighborhood, everything like that, people that you know and love, how do you make sure that they know the Lord and the things that he's done in your life? How do I be intentional that that happens? to the best of my ability, because they have their own choices to make and they have their own lives to live and they, they have their world to be responsible for. But as much as it depends on me, I wanna take responsibility for my piece of history and my passing on the God that I know and love because this, this part of the story today says that they didn't and it caused some major problems. And so we see this cycle that happens in the book of Judges. They start worshiping other gods and then bad things start happening, which we go, well, maybe God, God's punishing them. Well, I don't think it's actually that. I don't think it's so much that God is punishing them in the sense that, that we kind of think, well, here's the cause and here's the effect, punishment. I think what we're seeing here is God told this entire people that you will be the ones who tell the world who I am. You agreed to this covenant. And when they're not giving the world an accurate picture of who he is, then of course he has to intervene. Of course he has to bring them back to where they should be, which should give us pause for thought. Does that make sense? It's not so much that, that God's mad. He's bringing them back to the point where they turn to him and then they do. They cry out 
and the story tells us that God sends a judge or judges. Now, the judges don't function like a king. They are very tribal and they function within their particular local sphere of influence. And that being said, in our worldview, the judge is the one in our world who pronounces judgment. The judge gives the sentence. And then the one who carries out that sentence is a police officer or a prison guard or a correctional officer or something like that. They're the ones who carry out the sentence. In this Old Testament world, God pronounces the judgment. He gives the sentence. And then the judges are the ones who are responsible to carry out the sentence, to carry out the judgment. So you have a few good women and men who help Israel by providing judgment. They are the judges. Gideon and Ehud and Deborah and Samson. If you like action movies, then Judges is the book for you. These are people who are working towards trying to, go, to call God's people back to telling a proper story about who God is. And so we see the cycle. There's a list of all these judges, um, and I want to show that to you. This is where you can find their stories. Uh, so Israel does really good while there's a judge, but as soon as the judge dies, they're like, uh, we don't want to be told what to do anymore. And God says, okay, I'm going to let you do it on your own for a while. And then everything falls apart into chaos. And this cycle just repeats itself over and over again. The judge who gets the most airtime in the story, whoever gets the most real estate in terms of the number of verses in their story is the judge called Samson. But today, since I'm assuming you've done the reading on all these judges, uh, what I want you to do is focus in on the people group that Samson was sent to be a judge over. Remember I said that the judges are very tribal and the focus they kind of focus their call on the local sphere of influence that they have. Samson's story is all around the tribe of Dan. And Dan, and Dan is one of these smaller tribes, and so they kind of have this Napoleon complex, like short man's complex. If Dan was a short guy today, he would try to posture himself uh, like a six foot five bodybuilder in a five foot two frame. He'd probably drive a sports car or a monster truck or something like that. So a little background on the tribe of Dan. Way back in Exodus 17, it says that the Amalekites attacked the Israelites. The Jewish history holds that this was a surprise attack on the rear of the whole nation of Israel as they were traveling in the desert. And at the rear were the people who were weak, those who were older, those who were sick and the poor. And this forces all the other tribal groups to come back and come around those who are weaker in order to protect them. And in God's community, this is the way it should be. The weak, those who are older, the sick, the young, the poor, they should be at the center of the community, not shoved to the outskirts where they're vulnerable. And anytime we see people doing that in the scriptures, leaving them alone, pushing them out, God doesn't respond too well. Well, it's after this in Numbers 10, when the Israelites leave Sinai, that God gives each tribe its responsibilities. And the tribe of Dan is always assigned as the rear guard. And I think Dan was always resentful of this. I mean, the big tribe of Judah always got to lead the way. Dan was always at the back, cleaning up after, after everybody, kind of feeling unappreciated. So when Israel finally moves into the promised land, all of the territories are then divvied up. Uh, they go to take those territories. Each tribe was supposed to conquer and secure the piece of the map that was assigned to them. And Dan was given this section that's along the coast that goes inland a bit toward Jerusalem. So there's the coastal plain on the left, and then there's the Judah Mountains a little bit over to the east. And these mountains were where most of the tribe of Dan lived. I want to show you a map of the Via Maris. Over along the coast is a major trade route. 
There was a road that ran all the way through the Fertile Crescent from Babylon in the east to Egypt in the southwest. And along the coast, the road was known as the Via Maris, the way of the sea. And so this Via Maris went right through the part of Dan's territory that was along the coast. And this area was completely filled with people groups from like everywhere. It was like a total melting pot area filled with non-Jewish people, Gentiles. And I want to show you another area here called the Shefla. In between the coastal plain and the, and the Judah mountains was this valley called the Shefla, this area over, where over time the Jewish people developed a phrase. If you were coming from the coast, having just engaged with all those pagans near the Via Maris, they had this saying where they would say, how is your Shefla? In other words, how are you doing at engaging with people who don't know God? Now, in this region, so many of the biblical stories happened here in the Shefla. David and Goliath happened here. The story of Samson happened here in the, in the Shefla. And I want to show you this hill of Zorah. Uh, the middle hump on this hill, the hump to, is, is Zorah, and the hump to the right is Eshtaol. If you read your chapter in the story, both of these cities came up. When Samson is born, all of the tribe of Dan is living up on that ridge line, the whole tribe. And the problem with that is that they have been there for seven years, actually. They haven't taken possession of the land they were told to. In fact, they're still living in tent cities, according to the text. But their promised inheritance extends all the way out to the coast. Well, I want to show you another picture. This is the Sorek Valley. This is a 180-degree flip of the view I just showed you. This is the valley down at the bottom, uh, and it's called Sorek Valley. And there are actually five valleys that run east to west from the Mediterranean Sea up to Jerusalem. I'll show you a picture of that. So if you're going to attack Jerusalem from the Mediterranean going west to east, then you have to come up one of these valleys. And so each of these valleys has a guard city, cities like Megiddo and Gezer and Beth Shemesh. In the story of Samson and Delilah, Delilah is from the Sorek Valley. So Delilah is living down there and the tribe of Dan is up on the hill where the photo was taken. These people groups, in other words, we're within spitting distance of each other. They're not hundreds of miles away. They're not even dozens of miles away. When you're up on this hill, if you turn to the right, uh, you can turn to the right, and from that vantage point, the tribe of Dan could see all of the five major Philistine cities. And on the right side of this photo would be the city of Ekron. This is where the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant when they steal it from Israel one time, and they don't take it hundreds of miles away. When you read it, it makes it seem like it was taken, it was taken way far away. But it's, in, it's right within reach. It's like they're saying, we dare you to come and take it. It's like this big game of capture the flag. And what is the tribe of Dan doing for seven years? Dan is sitting up in the hills because they're scared. They're scared of what God gave them because it's filled with people they don't know and people who they're afraid of. Have you ever lived somewhere you didn't like to live, like a town or city or neighborhood? Maybe an apartment complex or something like that or a certain part of town? Maybe there's some lessons here for us. What is Dan saying? They're basically like, God, I don't like where you gave us to live. It's not good enough. We deserve more. We deserve something better. It's not enough. What, what you think is right for me and what I think is right for me are totally different things, God. And what I think is right, obviously, is better than what God thinks is right. Right? I mean, that's what they're saying. So if you fast forward to Judges 18, it says this about the tribe of Dan. In those days, Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle. 
hmm. because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five of their leading men from Zorah and Eshtimel to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all the Danites. They told them, go and explore the land. The question is, should they, they shouldn't have been doing this, but they did it anyway. It says they were seeking a place to settle. They knew what land God had given them, but they didn't want it, and they wanted more. They thought they deserved something else. I want to show you what they did. They looked for another place, and this is where they finally ended up. Dan is way up there at the top, and they're supposed to be way down there, <laughs> right above Judah. And they go and attack this peaceful people way up there, and they take it for themselves. And the text says they like that land because it looks safe and secure and independent. They think they will lack nothing there. They're basically like, we will never, ever have to ask anyone for help ever again. Remember, they kind of have this, I like to think of it as a Napoleon complex. I mean, they really, they didn't have anything to fear if they would have taken their original territory. If you look at that map again, they would have had Judah to protect them to the south and Ephraim and Manasseh to protect them, to protect them from the north. They are dissatisfied with what God has given them. And they think they're smarter than God or something. But ironically, the place they end up is the first place that any invading army coming down the Via Maris comes to. And so time after time, Dan just gets pummeled by invading forces because they thought they could go it alone. They thought they knew better than God. They thought they could take matters into their own hands and, and shout really loud about their rights. <laughs> we deserve more. But all along, God gave them everything they needed to succeed. All they needed to do was to trust him. And I hope you see the implications of this. Uh, they're pretty clear for us as well. When we think we can live life better on our own, rather than trusting God with how he says to live it. If we do that, things descend into chaos. And ultimately, back to what we said at the beginning, because we're giving the world an inaccurate picture of who God is. When we do that, we enter into that same vicious cycle that the Israelites did when you know, they did good for a while, but then they descend into chaos. And so here's the thing. We can break that cycle because there's two ways to learn. One is by making our own mistakes. And then the other way is from, you know, we make our own mistakes and we learn from them and try not to repeat them. But the other way is to learn from other people's mistakes and learn from that. And I don't know about you, but I've done some of both. And I really, really prefer to learn from someone else's mistakes. And that's our opportunity here today. So I would just encourage you to take that seriously and spend some time with God this week asking these questions. How are you ensuring that your children don't forget the amazing things that God has done for you? And how are you doing that on purpose? <laughs> the second thing is if you seek God only when you're in desperate situations, it might be that God will keep you in desperate situations. Do you, do you only seek God, in other words, when things are tough? Maybe we need to learn to seek him at all times. Don't get caught in that judge's cycle. Do you think that God is holding out on you? Are you content? You know, he's not. Be content with your portion. You might not like it, but try to take the view that God is not going to ever give you less than the best for your life. Because even if it seems like you have these huge Philistines in your life that are impossible to conquer, like Dan thought, he's given you Judah and Ephraim and Manasseh and all the rest of the family to help you out. So go take what God says is yours. Are you content or are you constantly striving for something that you think is more?
I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus and produce good fruit, my friends.